0: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Robin Atkins, who is a reproductive mental health counselor specializing in reproductive mental health. In this conversation, that's what we talk about. We talk about the processes of birth and the various different complications that can lead to trauma or stress, and how Robin counsels women and men to deal with being mothers and fathers. It's a very powerful conversation, and I wanted to have much more of a conversation with her, but we only had an hour together. So I squeezed about an hour and 10 minutes out of her for you and uh, incredibly delighted. So let's just dive right in. Here is Robin Atkins. Your laptop's now, is this being a.
1: It's just loading and taking forever to load. I'm like, it could take the entire time we have by Oh, yeah,
0: we, so. we are in a rush, aren't we? Because you have,
1: nah, a, I have a, a very two important person. Client. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> a client, huh? Yeah.
1: What
0: What does a client mean to you? So,
1: so, well, you know, doctors have patients. In mental health, we don't have patients, we have clients.
0: Okay. That sounds a little so. bit more contractual.
1: Uh, yeah, it's not my favorite word, but yeah. that's just what the industry uses. So
0: Well but, yeah. yeah. My my parents had uh, uh husband and wife. I have partners and significant you go. there. So it's just <laughs> some language isn't as poetic as as others,
1: you know. True. True. I have someone that tolerates me. You do? <laughs> yeah. Just one? <laughs> oh no. As far as I'm maritally obligated to oh. just one. <laughs>
0: I uh, hope you're diversifying your tolerant pool.
1: (laughs) I have lots of people that tolerate me otherwise. (laughs) Mm.
0: So um, you have an awesome little phrase that I wanted to hear about. Um, It's called reproductive health. Sorry, I'm missing a tooth, so I'm still adapting to pronunciations.
1: Sure. Reproductive mental health.
0: Mental health. Okay. Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah
1: yeah so i happened upon this on accident um not something i intentionally went into and not something that was possible from an educational perspective when i went through undergrad or grad school Hmm. so it just can't. reproduction
0: does tend to happen by accident
1: (laughs) or plans although we can't really force it but that's a whole nother (laughs) conversation um (laughs) Um, yeah, no, doing reproductive mental health. There are other specialists in the area, but as far as I know, not a lot. Um, but there are now two schools that I know of that are doing reproductive psychiatry. Okay. As a matter of specialty. So that's out there. Um, I don't do the medication side of things. I do the therapy side of things. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but that wasn't even on my, it wasn't available when I went through grad school. It wasn't even on my radar.
0: And you went to grad school for? psychological counseling. Oh, counseling. Okay. Mm-hmm. And broadly speaking, what is counseling as opposed to other mental health professionals?
1: So counseling and therapy can be used interchangeably. Um, so I'll use both. doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, but psychiatrists prescribe and psychologists, it depends on the state. Sometimes they have additional capabilities. Like in some states, therapists or counselors cannot diagnose only psychologists can psychologists can do more testing and assessment than therapists can depending on the state um but a therapist has to have a master's and a license and then a psychologist is a doctorate a psychiatrist is a doctorate with a medical attachment to
0: it okay yeah and um so counseling is basically talk therapy then is that accurate yeah
1: i have well, yeah, I have a very eclectic approach to it. There's all these different theories of counseling. Yeah. Um CBT or EMDR, or whatever, feminist mm-hmm. theory, all of this. And I do have a pretty eclectic. So, while it is talk therapy, there are actual interventions and techniques we do use in sessions.
0: Hmm. Could you explain what an intervention is? Is this where you get every family member in the same room and, and shame the person into being done
1: <laughs> No. No. It's not like the... T- wasn't there a TV show like Intervention or something where they did that? Like, that's not what we would do. Um, no, it's more like... If we wanted to identify your cognitive distortions, I would pull out a worksheet on here's the eight most common cognitive distortions. Let's walk through them and see if you can identify any you have, or if I see some in you, You could, we could talk about whether or not you agree with that or not that those are present. So that would be an intervention.
0: And so making one aware or working on becoming aware of one's cognitive Uh, distortions, uh, that awareness kind of corrects or you train yourself to correct for that distortion to align it with more, I guess, either a more accurate picture of the world or a less uh, debilitating picture of the world, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I think identification is the first step. And then what do we do when we know we have them? And most people have cognitive distortions because they are coping skills that they've used throughout their life to deal with stuff. And a lot of them could be from childhood and they're just not healthy coping skills into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And so like, for example, one cognitive distortion is very black or white thinking, all or nothing. And that doesn't really serve very well in adult relationships.
0: Except for Um, on Twitter, it works
1: wonderfully. uh, (laughs) You know what's funny about that? I have a pretty nuanced take on things on Twitter, and people either love it or hate it, that in and of itself. So, apparently that shoves people into that (laughs) cognitive distortion anyway. Like, why are two on my side? I don't have a side. So, (laughs) I'm on everybody's side. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Twitter's its own world, and I've been fortunate to create real relationships out of Twitter, which is just generally how I exist in the world anyway. I'm I'm not interested Hmm. in branding myself. I'm interested in relationships. So, yeah, it's been great. Actually, I've made some really meaningful connections there.
0: Well, I don't mean this snarkily, but a kind of it's a snarky question. How do you know that these real relationships aren't a cognitive distortion because they're all virtual, right?
1: No, they've stayed with me for weekends at my house.
0: Oh, okay, so it branches out of that, and then, but let's expand on what a real relationship is. It, mm-hmm. um, what are like the parameters of uh, knowing? without cognitive distortion, that you are in a real
1: relationship? <laughs> well, relationships can be real even with cognitive distortions there. I have cognitive distortions. You have cognitive distortions. No, I don't. Everybody That's has totally them.
0: Clear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would be one right there. So <laughs> me. relationships can be real, even if they are present in them. But for hmm. me... There's a certain level of vulnerability to have a relationship that's real versus one that's strictly online. And everybody has their own boundaries around what that is. I tend to be a lot more open. I think I'm a lot more comfortable being open than most people. And sometimes it scares people away, which is fine. Um, but I have real conversations Um, It's not like I have excessive DMs, but I do have real conversation and DMs with people that sometimes become real offline and we meet in real person. Sometimes it doesn't, just depends. If they're international, I haven't had that pleasure yet, but I'd like to. Mm.
0: So Mm -hmm. So the reproductive... Uh, Well, there's the act and then the consequence of uh, reproduction. And the human aspect of that uh, is very cognitively, uh, I don't want to say challenging, because that sounds like challenged, but it is quite a load. Um, And I'm sure that there are different parameters for the father versus mother with regards to... um, You know, being in a real relationship with this being. What are, since you do or you have had to craft a reproductive mental health toolkit, what are some of the um, patterns that you see that you um, ended up uh, or end up uh, dealing with a lot with regards to whatever it is to be a mentally fit reproducer?
1: (laughs) Well, let's. Identify first the kind of issues I'm seeing, and then we can kind of talk about how that works out into behavior patterns. Hmm. I tend to see people that deal with infertility, loss, traumatic pregnancy, high-risk pregnancy, um, post-adoption, post-abortion. So anything related to a reproductive event, um, I tend to see people around those things. Um, Even the the lack of being able to reproduce, so infertility, I see people. And so behavior Hmm. patterns, there are definite generalizable male female patterns of dealing with these things or managing these things um, but overall for each individual person the way they go through that is very individual to so that persons mm. with their whole history life experiences the people around them what kind of support network they have all of that so the patterns i see most often is women carry the physical burden of pregnancy but also very much the emotional burden so even when reproduction goes at planned so we're intending to have a child we are able to get pregnant fathers typically don't feel connected so much to the new being as moms do until birth it's kind of just this abstract like i see my significant other going through this thing and i'm very connected to her experience of it but the other life i'm not necessarily until birth totally aware of what that really means Mm -hmm. that's one of the patterns i see
0: Mm men men do uh, uh we identify with that which can be measured mm-hmm. uh, tends to or be fixed yeah
1: or fixed. something or, i can fix
0: do you do you fix people who want to fix things
1: <laughs> that's a great question i help them fix themselves <laughs> hmm. <laughs> fix or fix thyself <laughs> yes healer heal
0: thyself fix or fix thyself yes yeah. the okay so i well one I, i'm not a father but two i'm uh, I'm not a body with a cervix. Mm-hmm. So, um, and even if I did have a cervix and I haven't been a mother, then I still don't understand this question. What are some of the emotional uh, burdens? What is, it, what is it to be shouldering the emotion of that process or lack of that process? What are some of the things that are operating there?
1: That's a really good question. And my brain like split into 20 different directions based on yeah. what the um complication is that's arising out of it there's a lot of feeling of lack of control Mm. um, not just over one's own body because it kind of gets a mind of its own during that whole process but also
0: literally it's
1: literally yeah yeah (laughs) it's doing all of these things um and then control over the well-being of the other life um And this can get into political issues and the abortion issue and all of that, of how much control we do actually have. But assuming we want to carry pregnancy to term, there's not a lot of control. So for somebody who's had a loss, for example, or infertility, a pregnancy loss or infertility or child loss, going through another pregnancy after can generate a lot of anxiety around, is this going to make it to term? Are we going to have a live birth out of that? So I see a lot of anxiety. I see a lot of grief, Mm -hmm. Um, even through... Clients experiencing IVF and they IVF? have a failed transfer, meaning, yeah, in vitro fertilization. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So if they have a failed transfer, meaning the embryo does not attach, implant, or it is miscarried, that is a significant loss for some. Mm. So I see a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety.
0: Hmm. The. The amount of expectation and uh, responsibility without having control, um, mm-hmm. I, I wonder to what extent, and I don't know if this is a question that you necessarily want to venture into, but I, I wonder to what extent, what kind of adaptive psychological capacities um, have been you know, over time? selected within women to deal with that amount of expectation and responsibility and lack of control and like the I can I can just see some sort of need for faith or need for a religion that allows you to articulate what it means to have faith and time and to be relaxed in the face of all this stuff. I can see that the the process that women undergo as conscious psychological beings in this incredible project that they're just kind of witnesses of. um, What are some of the... I guess you can see, as a counselor, you can see what works better. So you might be able to see that here are some of the capacities or some of the talents or, um, attributes that make up for, uh, make up for somebody who can go through this or weather this, it's just a huge, uh, it, it just seems like it has such a powerful, uh, kind of background effect on our entire culture. The, the, mm-hmm. This uh, this project and this process that women go through.
1: I think our culture does a really poor job overall of acknowledging this process is actually happening. Hmm. Um, I I see in our culture this idea that mothers are either consumers or producers, and that's hmm. really their role. And so all the advertising is either focused on stuff you need for baby or pregnancy or how you get back to woman after pregnancy, like how you bounce your body back to be in shape or whatever, like there's this very Hmm. structured thing around you are who you are before baby. And we need to get you back to that as soon as possible. Instead of this idea of like this huge magnanimous thing has happened, it changes your entire life. It changes you internally as well, not just physically, but emotionally, and mentally. And let's embrace that and see that Hmm. as a growth and not as a thing we need to then revert away from or back from. It's very bizarre to me how our culture
0: handles pregnancy. Well, yeah, I would just um, opine that it's probably because uh, our culture is so based apparently on what is apparent, um, you know, and that's what we can buy and sell. So that's just kind of a byproduct of consumerism, which tends to overstep its bounds, and people forget that there are other realms of life, cultural realms of life, that aren't reproduced in the commercial aspects. So, with that as a starting point, uh, what would you think if you were speaking to, let's say, you had a daughter and and um, you're trying to explain her, not just the facts of life, but the facts of this process. What are some of the things that you don't see out there that you would like her to know?
1: I love that you asked this question because I have a 13-year-old daughter.
0: Oh, she's I have four, on the cusp.
1: I, yeah, I have four living children. And so my youngest is four. And so my 13-year-old daughter was eight or nine when my youngest was born. She was born at home. So she very much saw the reality of like pregnancy multiple times and then birth itself. And then after birth. And it was funny when she's about 10, she's like, I'm never doing that. That just looks exhausting. Um, and now she's at the point of like, I want to do that, but what are the skills I need or what, what are the tools I need to do that? And so we do have those conversations around you need a support network and you need a partner that's going to be fully engaging in that process with you. Um, and how to choose partners. Well, based on, do you want to have children or not? Um, And just on a very basic level, like sex education and consent means and all of that. So we can prevent, if we don't want pregnancy, we can prevent that and um, retain autonomy and agency in those decisions. So Hmm. right now at 13, it's really more around that, like sex edge and consent and what that all means. And then we do have conversations around like division of duties in the household, so that kind of touches on that, because I work full-time, my husband works full-time, so how do we divide things? How like That's actually a really important point. When I'm meeting people that are trying to add to their family, I'll ask them, how have you prepared the other family members to welcome another human into your lives? The whole household is gonna shift, and how do we even do that? And most people don't think of that. We didn't for the first three. We didn't think about that beforehand, how much it was gonna shift our entire lives to have a new human being. Um, and so the last one, we were very intentional about what do we want that to look like? How do we want to manage that? How is my career going to change? Are we open to that? How is my husband's career going to change? Are we open to that? How are the other ones going to adjust? And so after my fourth living child, um, the other kids were like, we're just kind of done sharing you and sharing space. Mm. <laughs> um, how do you guys feel about that? And they weren't as probably adult sounding as I am about it. the general gist was, how do you feel about that? And um, I was ready to be done too. So it wasn't necessarily because they wanted to be, but we had very real conversations about how does this impact everyone?
0: Hmm. Uh, You brought up something about you have a full-time career and your husband has a full-time career. So this is a two-career family. This is a very, um, it's not a modern invention, but there is some sort of movement that looks down on you know, a, a two career family household. That's a that's something that most people deal with. But how do you deal with that intentionally? And how? I mean, how the heck do you even do it? But but how do you do that with grace and intentionality? And
1: I don't always do it with grace. Okay. Um, I, and Thank I. You. There are times. Honesty
0: is is uh, not a or dishonesty is not a cognitive distortion of yours, apparently.
1: Right. No, no. Um, there's some days I'm better at it than others. I think I'm very blessed that I love what I do and I love being a mom. So, whichever environment I'm in, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I also have the guilt of I'm not in the other environment. That's a very real thing for me. Sitting here with you, I have guilt that I'm not home. Like, my babysitter texted me and, like, Althea, my youngest, is being so adorable today. These are the things she said to me. And I'm like, oh, man, okay. I should be there for this. So that's real. And that's very real for a lot of working women, I think, of like, I'm not experiencing the other thing when I'm. Hmm. Um, but for people that don't like their jobs, that must be so much harder. For me, I can't wait to be to work, can't wait to be home. Hmm. Um, I also work for myself. So I set up my own schedule. I have a private practice. So I can be very intentional about when I work and when I don't. I can be very intentional about childcare, who I hire, who I don't, what schools we use, we homeschool too, for the most part. So I know. So that's we're very intentional about that as well, um, how we do that, when we do that. And we try to work within people's natural rhythms. My children are all night owls. So we school later in the day, I work mornings, we just try to work around what everybody's natural schedules are and cycles are, but there's a huge privilege in being able to do all of that. Like the average employee can't set up their own schedule, can't do their own thing. So there's a lot of privilege in how I do that. And I'm aware of that, but I will tell you, if there were more people doing what I do and it wasn't so necessary, I would be happy to step back and be home more.
0: Not saying being a career woman, but saying speaking into the uh, reproductive mental health uh, matters.
1: Yeah, if there wasn't such a dire need for therapists that specialize in that, mm-hmm. I think I probably would take a step back a little bit and be home more. I don't think I'd ever stop. Um, mm-hmm. My husband and I have talked about my how I'm made up as a human being. I'm always learning. And I like to use the adult part of my brain and have interactions with adult people. And learning about people is my joy, people's stories, people's lives. So what I do very much feeds into that, what I find joy in. And so I don't think I could ever stop completely. But I, if there were more people doing it and there wasn't such a demand, I'd step back a bit.
0: So if you were writing a book on mental reproductive health, and maybe if I were written this and I'm not aware of, but let's just say for sake of uh, storytelling... Mm -hmm. that you're writing a book about reproductive mental health and you had to pick like four topics or something like that. Some, some sort of random number that's manageable. What are some of like the basics of uh, reproductive mental health?
1: So I am creating a curriculum for other therapists around it. And um, right now it's 18 hours long and there's 12 topics. So I will try to pick the highlights. Um, Infertility loss, reproductive loss. And I would name it overall reproductive loss that covers about nine of the topics, but reproductive loss, um, high risk pregnancies, births, which kind of ties in traumatic birth too, which is its own thing. And then a newer area is gender and reproduction. And this is, there's not a lot of research on it. There's not a lot of data I can find on it, on how those who are dealing with gender dysphoria manage pregnancy or infertility or any of that it's kind of a new area that isn't really talked about or discussed Hmm. so that would be another one
0: okay um that's a huge we could probably have 17 conversations on this and still not be Mm -hmm. scraping the bottom of the barrel um i'm i'm curious about the um unique trauma with regards to reproduction, what are some of the patterns that you see in some of the coping mechanisms? Like, I, I guess we would have to imagine how traumatic that could be. What, what's the particular trauma of that?
1: So, traumatic pregnancies could be anything from a high risk diagnosis to mom to a high risk diagnosis to baby. Um, so, in my case, my second pregnancy, I had hyperemesis, which is extreme vomiting and nausea. And I was on bed rest with a backpack of fluids hooked up through a pick line in my arm. And the whole thing, it looks like what you look, it was very traumatic. Um I had a hmm. two-year-old and I was in grad school at the time doing my internship. So there was a lot of stress and anxiety and hmm. not knowing if, baby was going to make it. I mean, with hyperemesis, the mom's at more at risk of the baby unless mom's body gets out, which mine did at 30 weeks, my water broke, and then he was born at 32 weeks. And so that was all very traumatic. Having a baby in the NICU can be very traumatic. It's a very mm-hmm. high paced environment with lots of stimuli. And right after you give birth, lots of stimuli is not the best thing for recovery. So that can be pretty traumatic. For those who want a particular type of birth, whether that be, I want a C-section, but I don't get one, or I want a natural birth and I end up in C-section, that can be traumatic as well. Being cut open when you don't want to be cut open can be very traumatic. Um, Not to mention just how that affects the hormones, like during birth, how the hormone flow normally goes, you don't get with C-section. So how that is all felt is felt differently in connection with baby can be different. So that can all be traumatic. Um, coping with that. Um, I either see people turning inward or turning outward and those can be healthy or unhealthy. So turning inward could be, I have a really good resource and store of energy and capability with myself to manage these things. I've got really good skills on what I can control, what I can't control, letting go of what I can't control and managing that really well um for my high-risk pregnancy I deal with crisis really well I don't deal with the mundane very well mundane drives me crazy but I deal with crisis the
0: mundane the the normal yeah okay the
1: normal everyday annoyances drive me nuts but crisis I do really really well so that I was really strong in that pregnancy and didn't show a lot of trauma during it it came after just processing everything that had happened but during it I wasn't really struggling all that much um but some people don't. So they turn external where are my resources around me. And that's another thing that our, how I got into this specialty was there was nobody for me. When my son was in the NICU, I was saying, I need a therapist. And they were like, well, you're going to have to go find one. And I'm like, I have a two-year-old at home and I have a baby in the NICU. I'm not anywhere, but one of those two places. I'm not willing to. So there was nobody to come meet with me in the hospital. So that's how I started doing what I do. And so- As a culture, we really could do a better job of supporting those going through any of these scenarios. Hmm. And it's a lot of red tape around like insurance. Will they pay? Will hospitals let you on floor to meet with patients? Is there already that existing within the hospital structure? Some do, some don't. So it's a lot bigger picture than just can a parent find the resources? Are the resources able to be there based on whatever red tape exists?
0: You said that the processing came afterward, and you can be as autobiographical as you want, but what are some of the forms that processing uh, of trauma uh, around this uh, occurs? Mm -hmm.
1: There was a lot of crying. Um, There was a lot of Hmm. Um, self-assessment. like Whether or not I'm a good mother and a good person based on how that all went down. My husband and my marriage almost tanked during that pregnancy. So how we had to go through counseling and how do we overcome the damage that was done to our marriage during that pregnancy? Um, And then My son and I had a difficult... About two years before we really bonded on a... like. When people think of bonding after pregnancy, they think of this like euphoric moment. And that happened with all my other births where I met my baby and I'm instantly in love with him. I would have killed for him. I would have taken on lions for him, but I didn't feel warm and fluffy about him Mm -hmm. for about two years. Um,
0: And And, then he had
1: his... Go ahead.
0: I'm sorry. Just during that period... Were you wary? Were you just going through the motions of being a mom? Um, And how did you be patient with yourself for not having those feelings? Because I'm sure that there was probably some guilt there. Oh,
1: yes. There's definitely guilt and shame there. And I'm still working through the shame of that. Mm. um, to this day, he's 11 now. I'm still working through the shame of that. And part of that is because babies that are born preemie tend to have some neurological frontal lobe issues. So he's on autism spectrum and has ADHD. He's very high functioning, but he has some struggles that I have a hard, so he had a hard time bonding with me. I had a hard time bonding with him. So there's still some of that. Mm. Um, the first two years very much felt like survival mode, of we're just going through the motions and luckily my oldest child is very agreeable, go with the flow, whatever you want. So, I mean, that creates its own issues worrying about her in the future, but for right now, that's a benefit to me. Um,
0: see, <laughs> I, I to, think sometimes you're a little too, uh, humanly smart for your own good. Cause you, you see, probably, all the
1: problems. <laughs> probably I'm like, you need to not conform. How do I help you not conform? Anyway, uh, fight with me more. No. Um, So, but she made it very easy to exist with her in a very real way. And she's still like that. You just, in her presence, she's in your presence, she's happy. So that, that was easy enough with him. It was really just how do we, and he was on a heart monitor for six months after he came home from the hospital. So how do we just make sure he doesn't die? And then after that, it was about 18 months old when I started noticing signs of autism. And so then it was like, how do we get him help? So it really was survival. And I'm trying to, I think during, during that time, I was working for another agency doing home based therapy services, but I could still set up my own schedule so I was working mainly evenings in people's homes so when my husband was off work, so that is how we kind of managed like the ins and outs of the daily life thing
0: hmm. and then, if you don't mind sharing what was the turning point for that how how did you uh or
1: um discover what well, we those? got discover what i'm sorry
0: that that uh, we, we're in a different place now um, or I'm, I'm starting to be close to this
1: uh, that so. didn't happen for several years after okay. that Yeah, um, we got pregnant again we didn't want to be pregnant again that was its own thing then we had a miscarriage and then I didn't want to have a miscarriage and that's that's own thing and we've had two more children since um, I would say it's really only been since 2020 that we've really felt back to full functioning what a year to come back to full functioning but that was really hmm. the first time i felt back to full functioning
0: and were you homeschooling have you been always homeschooling or was that a late no choice?
1: that's just been since 2020
0: oh okay i'm sorry this is off topic but how's that uh, gone with uh, the adjustment uh, gun
1: <laughs> they don't love it um except for when we talk about them going back in person we're like you know you have nine hours of school well nine hours you're gone seven hours of school and then you have homework and now you have three hours of school and no homework so really which would you rather do and ultimately at the end of the day they'd rather do the three hours but they miss the social environment yeah, of school. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. you sound like somebody who's um the perfect um i mean i i haven't vetted your cred or anything, like your certificates <laughs> or anything like that, but you sound like somebody uniquely qualified uh, with the vectors of, of analytical prowess and personal experience in, uh, in this. Um, is it is it difficult being a counselor? Do you end up uh, taking on a lot of that? Or are you able to uh, help people without necessarily internalizing the stuff that... You're investigating because I know that a lot of sympathy has to occur in order for an accurate assessment to happen. There might be some sort of muddying of that. I just wonder professionally yeah. how you navigate that.
1: I love that question. And I think my grad school did a pretty good job of just setting us up for different ways you can manage that. So for me, I'm a person of faith. And so I pick a spot on the way home. It's a cross that's always lit up no matter what time of day it is. And I just kind of dump everything there. Mm. And that's where I pick it up the next day. So that's a very visual thing for me. Um, But just in general, it's a double-edged sword. I'm able to have empathy for anyone. I used to work with both victims of sexual abuse and pedophiles, and I could have empathy for anyone and not take it on, not make it mine. It's not about me. So I have really good boundaries about I can pour out empathy and not make it about me at all. The flip side of that is in my personal relationships, I sometimes have a hard time not shutting off and just like, okay, tell me all the things, but I'm not truly engaged in it. So I have a hard time with that. So it's got its own Hmm. drawbacks, but with clients and occasionally there'll be a breakthrough of like, right now I'm really struggling with the fact that we're not having more kids. I'm like 95% glad, but 5% of me is really sad that we're not having more kids. Mm. So I have a lot of clients that are pregnant and I'm just kind of like internally a little sad that that's not me. Um, But that doesn't come out in session, really. The only time I really have an issue at all in session is um, sometimes around the topic of abortion, my own sadness over mine can enter the room, but I'm really aware of when that happens, And I'm really good at explaining to my client, like, can you just give me a minute? I got to shove my crap back out of the room and stay focused on you. And I'm lucky to have amazing clients that are aware that I'm a human being and stuff's going to impact me. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it really hasn't been an issue. That's only happened twice, but it really hasn't been an overall issue.
0: Mm -hmm. Back to the, um, I'm sorry we're doing so breakneck. But you That's gotta, okay. you, you gotta go, and you have so much that I just I could talk to you forever. You, you dealt with pedophiles. There's a lot of misconcept. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have to go there, but there's a lot of misconception. Oh yes, or, mm-hmm. um, of that and
1: uh, have me back on, and
0: we could talk just about that. I'd be okay. glad to. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh what are some of the things uh, that you would say to men who are embarking on the uh, witnessing of the pregnancy and then the fatherhood thing? How, how do you help men or how, how do you think men should uh, prepare for that? Or be so of?
1: first of all, the, your child will know you prior to their birth. So just speaking, whether it's reading books to your wife or directly to her belly or singing or whatever. Um, My two daughters that were born vaginally, they came out, my husband's, I don't even remember what he said, but instantly, like they know that voice. Other people are in the room talking. They don't care. They know. So that connection is already there for your child. So be expecting that that relationship has already began, whether or not you are aware of it. Also typically not all but typically men don't like things they can't fix or cannot control so get more comfortable with the uncomfortable Mm. meaning whatever your significant other's experience of it is emotionally or physically just be in it for the sake of experiencing it not because you need to fix it manipulate it make it better make it work just be in existence with it
0: Hmm. so again um Faith is, uh, or a culture of faith is something that prepares people for this. Uh, you know, even the concept of God or a higher power is useful in, you know, saying, I don't have control, but I'm here, I'm present, and I'm, this is how I got here too. You know, like this kind of, like this is how I came to, um, is a good uh, uh, measure uh, for uh, encountering this.
1: I think for those without faith, Especially for women, knowing we're connected to a long history of other women who have been through hmm. this. And it's a very strong tie of womanhood. Yeah. You know, like our entire being, unless there's something amiss, is created to do this. From, and I don't mean creation from like a God perspective, just in yeah. general, our biology is created to do this. So, this long history of women that have gone before us and done this, it can really ground women and like I can overcome whatever because I'm not the only woman to ever have to overcome whatever it is and in general as a society we could do a lot better with not looking at suffering as something to be avoided definitely not something to be courted like I don't want to intentionally court suffering but if it's going to occur how do I grow from that and how do I shift so I can find the beauty amongst that okay and so um go ahead
0: No, go, please continue.
1: Um, So with my losses, for example, when I feel pain from that, and I still do, um, most people want to shy away from pain and like move away. I want to distract or I want to do something else. For me, I sit and fully engage in that. And I think about that little one that I don't have. And because that's where all the love is for me, I can't physically hold them. So that's where I feel the closest to them is in that pain. So it's not a negative experience for me. Um, that grief is a beautiful, filled with love experience. And I kind of feel like human relationships, That's there's going to be suffering in any human relationship. So if you can embrace, love doesn't always look like Hollywood, rarely. Does it look like what Hollywood suggests? Um, a lot of times love is being willing to sacrifice or suffer for another human being. Hmm.
0: Hmm. So the... The pivot from this – is, this is an interesting uh, kind of twist, a kind of ironic twist, that you're not in control of all of this stuff. Well, I guess this isn't so ironic. It's CBT and stoicism. You're not in control of anything other than how you perceive it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so going from a place of being harmed into not justifying it or apologizing it or diminishing it at all, but accepting it on a very radical level. Is, mm-hmm. is the pivot into uh, incorporating this trauma or some sort of negative event or harmful uh, pattern of behavior into something that is, is structurally sound, I suppose. And then that you're also aware of, so you're not ignoring that.
1: Yeah. So post-traumatic growth or people that experience trauma that end up with health and growth versus like post-traumatic stress syndrome depends on resiliency and support networks. So do I have the internal resiliency to accept suffering with and trauma without um, thinking this is the end or life is over or this is, you know, the worst possible thing? Uh, but I can overcome some faith or belief that I can overcome. And then having the support network to, like, I need to, we don't have to do it alone. Nobody has to do it alone. We're, what are the support networks to do that with? Um, and I've had PTSD as well. So, I don't want to say that that's like a failure of a human ability to thrive. It's a lot of times trauma is based on not the event itself, but what happens around that event. So, for example, if one of my clients has a loss of pregnancy at 28 weeks, there may be sadness, there may be grief, there might be deep suffering and loss, and they might come to therapy for that just to process the grief and how, like, do I get back to normal life? What does that look like? But whether or not it becomes that or PTSD has a lot to do with how the people around them react to that loss. So if you have a doctor walking in the room, so sorry, your baby died. Have you thought about funeral services? Whoa. Like, and that's frequent. That happens often of like, we're just going to move right on. We're not going to acknowledge this magnanimous thing that's happened. And so how Hmm. for my own, like, I was raped when I was 15. And like the trauma wasn't so much the rape was traumatic, but it was the responses around that, like my dad's response to me. And then the school, everybody in school knew and there was that was all much more traumatic than the event itself. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So bad things are going to happen, but whether or not they become something you grow out of Mm -hmm. and overcome versus something that perpetually for the rest of your life ties you to it yeah. has a lot to do with you your resiliency and then your support around in you
0: the, the context of that is mm-hmm. it um speaking of distortions is it um are you rewriting it? let's say something really traumatic happens 15 years ago i'm like okay fine i'm gonna finally deal with this is it a process of like kind of rewriting history in a way or uh rewiring your brain or how do you, what's the proper way of dealing with something that's really far gone that you've just kind of accepted as, you know, fact, but then you kind of come to a realization that actually, like I wrote things around that wrong. I need to rewrite things. How how does that process occur?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's narrative therapy where we rewrite the narrative. You never want to rewrite a false narrative. It won't stick. So it does have to be Hmm. a truth, but there's multiple perceptions of that event. Like you said, so perspective, perceptive taking, perception taking. So how did I perceive that event? How did other perceive that event? And if it's damage that's been done to you, how did the offender perceive that event? Which there's this um, technique Mm. I use called reach forgiveness therapy. And it's based in Christianity, but the idea of how to forgive somebody, there's actually five steps to how to forgive somebody. And that can be hugely freeing of then carrying that wound with you forever. And it doesn't mean letting down boundaries it doesn't mean that person has to be in your life or reconciliation happens forgiveness Mm. and reconciliation really aren't tied together um so it it can that other person doesn't even necessarily need to know but it means i'm freeing myself from the harm of that event or being tied to that offender so that can be really helpful too even if it's your own body like i have to forgive my own body for this thing that it did that i didn't want it to do because i didn't have control over that
0: yeah, that was my next question. How do you forgive God or, or biological <laughs> evolution? Like uh, if the perpetrator is not human, is that is forgiveness still the same process?
1: I think as humans we tend to apply blame somewhere that is concrete, not abstract. So whether it's another human <laughs> being or God, we apply it to something concrete. Our brain does not like abstract. We fill in details and stories even if we don't have them. So <laughs> I, it's rare that I would find somebody that's just like, I'm just in general pissed off and I have nowhere to place that. That's not typically, it's I'm angry with the doctor, I'm angry with God, I'm angry with my spouse, I'm angry with my body, something. So how do we forgive that? The the, the interesting thing, and I, I don't know how much you want to dive into this, but the anger with God thing is something I see pretty frequently. And there's this separation between cognitively, I know God didn't cause this to happen, but he allowed it. And emotionally, I need some place to place anger and he's the safer place to do that. Hmm. He can bear it. So, it's kind of interesting for people of faith how that works in their
0: favor. Yeah, the – yeah, God isn't – I mean – And for anybody who is uh, listening to this, who's a believer, who's actively anti-faith, please just think of this as metaphorical language for people dealing with very complex uh, shadowy emotions that are bigger than human. Um, But the uh, being angry at God is actually really helpful. (laughs) Yes, it is. There's Psalms that are all written
1: about it. Like I don't know how many times David got to scream at God, but it's pretty encouraging that I was never like, no, nope, sorry, I'm not here to listen anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: As a parent, how do you handle that then when uh, if it ever happens to you or if you ever see that happen or if it happened to somebody and you were counseling this person where you take that role of somebody a child uh, placing all this blame on you, placing all this anger on you. How do you process something for mm-hmm. somebody else?
1: That's a great question because clients do do that. They place a lot of anger on the counselor or blame on the counselor if they need a place to put that and it's um, familiar enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I usually first acknowledge it in the room, like, wow, there's a lot of resistance here. What's the emotion behind the resistance? Is it irritation, frustration, anger, shame, fear? What is the emotion behind the resistance? And then reassuring them, I'm a safe person to work that out on. So I have had clients that have called me a bitch that have flicked me off that have left the room and come back and um that's okay um as long as we continually have conversations about why that's happening so i don't allow abuse just for the sake of abuse i'm not going to be abused if we're not having conversations around why that's happening yeah. and that gets into a whole nother like personality disorder territory of like that's a different thing yeah. um yeah so but if it's just processing of grief and that kind of crosses over a little bit i listen to your podcast with disaffected
0: I was just going to ask that because you brought up personality disorders. And I
1: loved it. And I see though, a lot of people misdiagnosed borderline who have trauma. And so I've had a lot of clients who have had losses come in and their doctors have diagnosed them with borderline because they have medical trauma. And so they treat medical professionals as dangerous. And so they they can look borderline to them. Like, I love you, and then I hate you. Or I want to see you, and now I'm not showing up for appointments. Um, I won't take your advice. Maybe I will. But a lot of it has to do with trauma, and if we work out the underlying trauma of it, typically, they don't act borderline anymore. That's not to say, I mean, if they're truly borderline, it's not going to go away. It does not matter. But if they aren't, if it's really just trauma, hmm. they can usually, but they do transfer it to me.
0: Hmm. And you go through the process of acknowledging that for them and then saying that I'm safe, but there are boundaries. And then on your drive home, you just vomit that out onto Christ.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And I go play with my kids who, you know, Hmm. see the world is still magical and beautiful and mostly Hmm. harmless. (laughs) So,
0: Hmm. yeah. As a, as a mother, what are some of the things that um, you're, children have taught you um
1: oh my gosh do you have like five hours um really
0: broad question I just <laughs> want to hear some stories about this
1: yeah number one um resilience okay so,
0: define resilience let's define okay. resilience that's
1: so tough how do i resign um just getting up every morning and keep moving okay yeah So they force me to be resilient, but I'm rewarded for it as well. Um, So our interactions, 80% of the time are mutually beneficial. 20% of the time, I want to bang my head against the wall. Um, And I think it's about the same for them, (laughs) that ratio. (laughs) Um, But so they've taught me some resilience. They've taught me um, selflessness. So prior to my kids... Mm -hmm. I was going to go to Harvard and be an attorney and that life probably would not have led to being able to parent so well. And I'm not saying that any attorneys from Harvard out there can't parent, but for me personally, Robin would not, I'm too ambitious and it wouldn't have. So they've taught me to give up the ambition for more fame or notoriety or, um, outward, um, accolades, um, so they've taught me my importance of who I am on a more mundane level and in, on one-to-one individual level. And that's been beautiful. They also still see every sunset as magic, every little ant carrying something bigger than its head as magic. So mm-hmm. their world to them is still filled with wonder every day. And that's something I think if I am not able to maintain after they grow, I'll really the loss of that. I'm really trying to cultivate that in myself because it's such a wonderful resource for dealing with the world. It's like what in our own little house and our own little subdivision, what beauty can we find just in that environment every day?
0: Here's a big one, uh, which you kind of touched on, or there's the shadow of this there. How do you deal with that? Or how do you counsel people dealing with resentment of being a parent? Because the child does take Mm -hmm. over. Yeah. everything. So Mm -hmm. how do people acknowledge that and not let it fester? Or what is the process? What is the rather, um, what is the use of resentment? And how do you look at it in a way where it becomes beneficial or productive?
1: So first of all, I would say, absolutely, children can take up your whole life, if you have zero boundaries, or if you don't have a partner that's willing to help you balance it. Okay. So first of all, Find people in your life that are willing to help you balance parenthood. So I, I have outlets that have nothing to do with working kids that I engage with on a daily basis. And that's necessary to not get Robin lost in mom or in work. Um, and actually, for me, work is more likely to take over Robin than momming is. Um, so mm-hmm. having boundaries, number one. Number two, if there are reasons why your kids are taking over your whole life, let's find a basis for that. So is it you see your worth in your children, like they give you worth, or is it you're not getting emotional needs met with other adults, so you're having them do that for you? Or is it really just you're a single mom with four kids trying to work and, you know, what resources do we need to give you um, to help you have a life outside of that? Hmm. But I do know people that just in general resent being parents overall, just don't, didn't ever want to do it. And now I'm doing it and don't like it. And Mm. it's up to them whether they want to look at that as, I'm going to change this perspective into how am I going to grow through this and how am I going to become a better human through this, or how am I just going to survive it till they move on? And then am I ever going to deal with the backlash that's going to come my way once that's done? And that's really up to them. So you're
0: saying that a a kid can't necessarily grow up with a resentful parent and not feel it? Oh, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) Okay. There's an effect there.
1: Yes. Yes. There's an effect there. And I will say what's interesting is um, dealing with birth mothers that give their children up for adoption, nine times out of 10, when I've dealt with them, granted, they're coming for therapy, so that's not like an overall good statistic, but Mm -hmm. they they regret it. They thought they would resent parenthood, or they thought parenthood would be too hard for them, or they weren't going to be a good parent. But at the end of the day, what we view on paper as good parent is not necessarily what good parent means. And they regret not having the opportunity
0: to do that. And um, I guess regret is an odd but symmetrical backside of uh, resentment. How do people deal with regret? It's another kind of domain of the expectations and the imagination. how do, How do people formulate that in a way that's uh, not debilitating?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, grieving you have to grieve whatever loss it is that they So just had. sit down
0: and cry. Just.
1: No, grieving can be an active process. So it's different for every person. But so when I'm grieving my losses, it depends on which one I've had 2 I've had my abortion and then my miscarriage and I grieve them differently. With the abortion, it was a matter of taking ownership of my part in it and forgiving myself for that and moving through that. Um, And I know not everybody feels this way. So if people are listening out there and they don't fit, that's fine. You don't have to regret yours. You don't have to grieve yours. It's totally, I'm not trying to place anything on anyone. Mm -hmm. But for me, taking ownership of that, Grieving it and then grieving the loss of all the what ifs and um, at each birthday of my kids or each holiday, just a stop and sitting down for a few minutes and like, how old would the child be? What might they be doing? So having some kind of relationship on my end with somebody that I can't see and talk to and hold. And for the miscarriage, we um, it was December 10th of 2012. So that day we watched Harry Potter because that's what I did the day I miscarried so we watch Harry Potter and we cry together and the whole family does and we just talk about her and Mm -hmm. um, yeah and as my kids grow like we just um, introduced my oldest two to their older brother who was aborted and so we together talk about what how old he would be what he would be like so it's an active grieving it's an engaging in the loss not um, moving away from it or hiding Mm -hmm. from it um, there are times I need to shut it off. And so it's no. okay to do that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But self-forgiveness is the key to dealing with regret. Hmm. Oh, sorry. Okay.
0: <laughs> try to like not cry.
1: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, beautiful. it's so beautiful.
1: I will tell you my kid. Oh, this is another thing you asked me. Like, so when I told my oldest two about their brother, um, their response initially i was so afraid because i was so afraid they were going to have all these horrible things about me and first they said we're so sad that we don't get to know him here and we're so sad you went through that Mm. what a difficult experience that must be and um we're just glad you told us and we're glad we get to talk about him and have him be a part of our life and then it wasn't with my husband so their next question was how does dad feel about it which is valid um But it was beautiful. It wasn't, not everything has to be how we politicize it. You know, not everything has to be this dramatic Mm. pro-anti-whatever. These are real human experiences, real people go through. And if we politicize everything, we cut off the ability to have moments like you just felt of like true human experience and emotion and love and grace and beauty. Like there's so much there that we just politicize away.
0: Yeah, we'll get to a point where the personal becomes the political and then there's nothing personal left.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
0: It's just, um, you know, something I've been trying to speak to just on any given issue, any given uh, issue where, where something happens, people need to have a response to. Um, we, we have to understand that there's human beings involved and uh, remind ourselves of that. It's easy not. It's easy to completely forget about that. There's a lot of rewards for forgetting about that, too. Um, well,
1: wait. yeah, I'm sure like on Twitter, I'm sure if I became the super snarky, I never interested in what your experience of my words to you mean, I could have lots of followers, because yeah. that's how Twitter rewards people, right? Like yeah. super snarky, whatever. And not that everybody has big accounts is like that. But mm-hmm. because my response is typically, I want to know more about you instead of placing whatever my whatever is on you. Um, mm-hmm. That's not really rewarded in a 280 character algorithm. Uh, of-
0: but It's rewarded by cognitively distortioned or not real relationships.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I have a very fulfilling experience for the most
0: part. (laughs) Hmm. Yes. Um, I know you have to go. So I just want to say to wrap up that uh, earlier you said that you didn't say the word resentment, but I felt a little um, the the tension in your life of... uh, you said being selfless, your kids taught you to be selfless. And then he said that I wanted to go to Harvard and be this powerful person and get all this fame and reward. And I think that you are there. I think you're, (laughs) I think you're, uh, I think you're a superhero. You're really, uh, you're, you're you're pretty phenomenal. So, um, that, uh, recognition is going to come, uh, in its own time. And I know that, um, you're doing it and powerful work. And I would like to have you on again um, and pretend that you're my real friend too.
1: Or we could just be real friends.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but if we, if we produce it, then we get good content out of the deal too. So there's sure.
1: Absolutely. We can be real friends down. on camera. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I would love have- And thank you for saying that. Mike, I want to give all the credit to my clients. I have the saying of, I'm not responsible for their failures or their successes. So if I, I am phenomenal at what I do. It's because they're phenomenal at doing the work.
0: Mm-hmm. Any uh, parting? Uh, what what do, well, you said? Something you do things that have nothing to do with work or, or mom uh, mode. Um, is it pachinko? What is it? <laughs> I don't even know what pachinko is. It's a um, <laughs> Japanese marble game, I think.
1: Oh, I do taste Chinese marbles. Maybe it's actually pachinko. Anyway, um, <laughs> I am an avid gardener. I have an amazing book club where I am probably the most, and I wouldn't even call myself a conservative, but I'm probably the most conservative person there. And it's really fulfilling. We read all these really these books that stretch us all, and then we have conversations that stretch us all, and it's a it's a wonderful resource for me of women that accept me for who I am, even if they don't agree with what I say. Um, a book and, that,
0: that completely blew you away recently? You want to share
1: um, the book that we had the most discussion around was not what I was expecting. It's called Disgrace. And I don't even remember who the author is. Hmm. And it's a fiction book about a really terrible man who does really terrible things to women. And we had a lot of really good, not what you would think conversations like women would have around that, but more like frustrations about the women in the book um, but it generated a lot of conversation. But we tend to read books that are fiction or nonfiction in different cultures, and then we try to engage in that culture. So where I live, there's 400 and some restaurants. So if we're reading a book from based in Korea, we go eat Korean and talk about the book. So we try to fully engage. Engaging in culture is one of my things. I think you might have seen on Twitter, my daughter mixing the spaghetti sauce, and so we had the um, Italian music in the background, like. Engaging in culture is one of my outlets, too. I really like to fully enjoy life as mm. much as possible, even if it's just a little Italian music and wine. Mm. Yes, I'll appropriate all the cultures. <laughs> just let me experience your culture. I won't speak what it is. Just let me experience it. Um, so, yeah, and I used to be an avid runner having some health issues, but I hope to get back to that at some point. That was my, like, mental therapy
0: I was mm. running. So hopefully I'll mm. get
1: back to that. Yeah.
0: Robin, you're phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you
1: for having me.
0: Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.